0: Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, all you beautiful people out there. Uh, This week, we got something a little bit different, something kind of special, mostly because you're not going to have to hear from Brian Taylor and myself, which I might say I think is a bit of a relief. Uh, (laughs) We're bringing you something real special, a little bonus episode.
0: Bonus episode. That's right. Uh, Today, we're going to be listening to the first episode of season three of Inappropriate Questions, which is a lighthearted, warm, and inviting approach to having tricky interactions, which kind of sounds a little bit like Sick Boy, doesn't
1: it? Sounds a bit familiar. Hosts Elena (laughs) Hudgens Lyle, uh, a queer millennial, and Harvender Wadwa, a dad, are joined by fantastic guests to break down questions like um, is asking where are you from appropriate small talk or is it okay to ask a coworker <laughs> how much do you make uh, Brian have I ever asked you that question I, I don't think I have no. uh, or should you ask a, oh this is a good one should you ask a polyamorous person do you get jealous these are all questions that uh, I don't I you know what I don't I would love to know are these appropriate yeah. questions to ask people? <laughs> Christ, I think this is a I think this show is is a good learning opportunity for all of us.
0: How about this one? And and this is covered in in today's episode. It, in the first episode of the new season, is it okay to ask an amputee what happened to you?
1: Ooh, very sick boy. Very, very sick boy.
0: <laughs> Elena and Harv talk with guests to explore what strangers often get wrong about their amputations. So, I think that you guys will really enjoy this episode. Very and cool. we will uh, we'll see you on the other side.
4: People are curious, and that's great.
5: But there are some questions you just shouldn't ask, or at least not like that.
4: I'm Harvinder Vadva.
5: I'm Elena Hudgens Lyle.
4: And this is Inappropriate Questions.
5: Let's get inappropriate. Harv, it's show and tell this episode, and I brought you something.
4: Okay. I am intrigued.
3: Take a listen. My mom plays tricks with me on the daily. The only thing I can count on is it messes
2: with me unfailingly. And I don't know, and I don't
6: know, and I don't know, and I don't know, if I'm right to be
0: now, I don't want to tell you how I feel.
4: This is lovely. What is this?
5: This is my friend, Juliana Romantic, and she's a really great songwriter, composer, pianist. And aside from just being really cool, she's with us today because she's the person who got me interested in making an episode about the question, what happened to you? Being asked to amputees.
4: Hi, Juliana. Very nice to meet
0: you.
5: Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. What's a time that stands out to you that you've been asked this question?
2: I don't think of one specific instance as much as I just think of how the weight of it, it's like a. It's like more like a gradual constant burden. It's like, mm. instead of being asked like, hey, how are you today? Uh, people will ask me what happened to you before it's even like, hey, how are you? And it's like, over time it really weighs you down because you don't feel like you get to be a person first. You feel like you are... Uh, your explanation of your disability before you are a person. Mm.
4: So, Juliana, before we go any further, um, just describe because our uh, listeners are not able to see you. Yeah. So, describe yourself.
2: Yeah, even with the, the if they could, they'd see above the shoulders with Zoom technology. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I have uh, four fingers total, so I have one finger on my left hand and I have three fingers on my right hand. It's been that way since the dawn of my existence, don't particularly know why I uh, am missing a bunch of fingers, but I just am. And mm-hmm. this seems like my static and natural state to me. So to be c- confronted on a daily basis, or not daily, but frequent enough basis where people go, oh, why? It's like, mm-hmm. I don't know, It's it always was to me. Uh, so it's kind of funny. Mm.
4: I would like to understand that uh, when you were a child, it must have been a little harder on you because, a, children are very insensitive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Did kids ask you what happened to your hands?
2: Yeah, I mean, the the strategy that uh, my family had was basically get ahead of it. So the first day of school, when you arrive at school, you do a presentation and mm-hmm. you kind of go, "Look, I, I I have memorized this speech my whole life and given it. Oh my god, frequently. <laughs> um oh no. Yeah, basically the speech goes. Uh, someone asks the question, the classic question, what happened to your hands? Mm-hmm. And I go, Well, I was just born that way, just like you were born with your combination of things. Like you might be born with light hair or dark hair, or you might be born tall or short. Everybody's born different, and I just happen to be born with this difference. And you know, it's okay, because I can do everything that you can do. I can write, and I can uh, draw, and I can use scissors, and I can go play on the playground, and I'm perfectly fine. So Mm. you don't have to worry about me, and I want you to just let me be myself please chill. Yeah, basically <laughs> please chill. Uh you guys are panicking for basically nothing. Um mm-hmm. and then that would kind of get ahead of it or so I would feel. Mm. But at the same time, having to go and introduce yourself like that, it's like nobody else had to do that mm-hmm. speech. Like everybody else's differences were slightly less obvious. And so nobody had to announce themselves like, hey, I know I'm weird, everybody, but here's why you should be okay. Like nobody else had to make that speech. So even though in the long run, I guess it avoided bullying and I really didn't get bullied. So shout out to that. Um, but I, I I also feel like it did instill like the sense of like, you are very weird <laughs> from a young oh, no. age. no.
4: So, Juliana, what is that about this question that bothers you?
2: I feel like it's it's the same as someone, like, pointing and gasping, but it's just in words. Mm. Like, it's just someone going, why? Oh, no, like, but in what they think is a polite way, but it feels almost identical. Mm. It's like a verbal form of gawking where they kind of go, why is it like that? Oh, no, like, it's a kind of shock-based, impulsive reaction rather than one based in, like, compassion or even just waiting a minute to see like who I am mm-hmm. cuz literally if you talk to me for 5 minutes you'll know I'm pretty okay and <laughs> you don't need to be concerned and I will uh sarcastically set you straight so
5: <laughs> i mean as your friend i would like to protest you being okay we could <laughs> I, I can talk about all the cool things about you but i will refrain
2: i think that is why i, I do try to be more like a competitive person because it's it's like i want to prove that like i'm not only capable i am super capable and therefore mm-hmm. if you ever dare doubt me screw you like i will i will prove you wrong <laughs> it's in a way playing piano is a bit of a defense mechanism cuz it's like an instant proof like oh like everyone goes up to me and says oh i can't play piano and you can play piano and then there's like a, a instant mental switch of like oh she can do like probably a lot of things you know what i mean uh.
5: Before the world went all pandemic, one of the last things I did in person was go to see a comedy show with you. Mm -hmm. And the host of the evening was a Toronto comedian who's been asked what happened to her a lot. Mm -hmm. And she often starts her sets talking about her awkward interactions with strangers. Courtney Gilmore, my girl. She's
2: so good.
7: Thank you so much for having me. My name is Courtney. Um, I I know some of you at the back can tell just by the sound of my voice uh, that I don't have hands. Gives me away every time. Um, but I was born like this, so it's fine. Like, I feel fine about it. I'm having a good no arms year. It's okay. It's all okay. <laughs> I'm saving on scissors. It's great.
5: <laughs> Courtney, you tell a lot of stories in your comedy about the question what happened to you and some other things you've been asked too. Do you want to tell us what are your favorites of these stories?
7: My favorite, um, what happened to you? I mean, and I talk about this a lot in my comedy, but cab drivers are like the number one cab drivers, u- uber drivers, people who are just isolating me in a car <laughs> love to <laughs> love to bring bring up personal subjects in a in an enclosed space so they can't uh, you know, exactly escape the conversation. Mm. But um Yeah, there's, like, what happened to you, but also just, like, the follow-up tagline of, I know someone who um, has back problems, therefore I understand that you're an amputee and you don't have hands, and so my sister has back problems is probably my favorite, you know, uh, follow-up tagline to the question, what happened to you? (laughs) (laughs) Like you
5: kind of alluded to, do they expect you to have some traumatic story behind it?
7: Yes. I do think that most of the time, they expect a story. Like, they expect a really long, <laughs> tragic event. And the thing is, that is not what my case is. Like, I'm was a, I'm a congenital amputee, meaning I was born missing my hands and my right leg. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. there's nothing, like, too um, dramatic to get into. But, you know, I do know amputees who do have... Stories of like uh, accidents hmm. or or illness and such, and so um, why are you so comfortable approaching me, assuming that I want to like in this moment discuss potential trauma or tragedy? You know, you know, <laughs> right. like that's yeah. that's so interesting to me. You know, I'm like we're in the middle of a Loblaws grocery store, or we're in the you know in the cab, and you feel very comfortable asking this question. I'm scared to know what else you're comfortable with asking. You know. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Courtney, uh, is it also that some people, when they uh, ask this question and then they get a little embarrassed and just to make you feel good, they may say, oh, you know what? My sister has a bag problem.
7: Yeah, I do think people are trying to be relatable in a sense, like even if in my mind, that's not at all relatable. But to (laughs) to them, I think they're trying to throw something out there. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, You know, trying to backpedal a little bit once they realize that, oh, Mm -hmm. she was Born this way, so Mm. I better create some common ground here so that this doesn't get super awkward, you know, more than it already is. Mm. How do you tend to respond? Do you ever like make
5: something up and just try to play with them and see how they react?
7: Yeah, well, that's the thing is like, say you feel like, oh, I'm gonna be funny about it today if someone approaches me, Mm. but then you know, you're living your life and Sometimes you're not having a great day and you don't feel like mm. being funny. And so sometimes I'll yeah. just shut right down and just be like, you know what? I honestly don't want to talk about it. I'm not like your public educator 24-7. Um,
4: but but do you feel at times pressured into, into telling your story uh, just because you want to be, even though inside you are not uh, in the mood, but just so that they have a certain impression about you?
7: Yeah there's a lot of pressure on people mm. with disabilities to um feel like they're responsible for educating the general public and feel responsible for representing their community, you know? Right. Um, and that's, that's, I feel very conflicted about that sometimes because, yes, as a comedian, I do have encounters that are funny um, and are useful for my comedy. But, you know, there are lots of amputees who are not, you know, mining for jokes in their daily encounters. They just want to live their lives, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as I said, sometimes I'm having a bad day and, you know, someone comes up to me in the subway station and says something weird like, oh, you know, I think God is going to give you hands one day. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm 37. Like, it's been a long time. I think he would have done it by now if that were the case. But <laughs> I think that window has passed. Um, <laughs> How much of this falls on me, though, to personally, you know, make sure that someone is educated? Is that my emotional responsibility to justify my existence, you know, Mm -hmm. on a daily basis? So I Mm -hmm. I do struggle with that. I don't know if I have a clear cut answer, um, because I I definitely want to be the type of person who is an advocate for the disability community. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think there are certain platforms that allow for better dialogue and discourse about that rather than the back of a cab. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
4: (laughs) So I have two questions. Uh, One is your day-to-day life, how this disability has impacted you? And uh, the follow-up question is that, okay, now you are 37. And by the way, 35 was the age where if God wanted to give you hands, that was the cutoff. Uh, 35 was <laughs> <What>? the <cutoff. laughs> Does God have a direct line to you,
7: Harv? I missed the boat then. Yeah.
4: <laughs> so, um, And the second question is, I, I want to know about your experience while you were growing up
7: those are great questions. Well, I mean, on a day to day basis, my life sort of reflects how my upbringing was with my parents. So you know, as I mentioned, I have always uh, lived my life without hands or a right leg. And so to me, it's my normal. And um, I really have always appreciated the, the approach that my parents took, which was just to assume that I can do most things on my own and less told otherwise. Right. As a result of that, I've just always been um, a person who really values her own agency. And, like, my independence has blossomed almost to my own detriment where I'm very (laughs) stubborn. (laughs) I actually find it a little bit hard to ask for help because I figure, like, no. Like, if I'm opening a jar of peanut butter and it's really – and the lid is on really tight – I'll spend 45 minutes just trying to do it, whereas my friends are staring at me like just let us do it please like we know we know you're uh, we know you're a strong independent woman we know you can do it but like you're torturing us by making us watch this for a long time um, so
4: <laughs> just to give you a little bit about uh, myself there uh, that if i just cut my finger it's a paper cut i'm not even talking about a cut yeah. from knife then i expect to be served by my whole family not just
0: <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah. I, I i go to the bed and they bring the tea and then the food and <laughs> and everything and i need a good rest for a few days Oh I respect God. that. I respect that. You know, like
7: I'm a I'm a princess as well. You know, like there, are, I you gotta do what you gotta do. You know, yeah, yeah.
5: <laughs> Given that you're so independent, I'm wondering if other people uh, often see you as an inspiration. I've heard about how the way we see people as inspiring for living with a disability, it can actually be a pretty negative thing. Yeah. I've heard it called inspiration porn, I think is the word. What are your thoughts?
7: Yeah, so inspiration porn is a term that's used to describe um, the narrative of disability within the context of um, objectifying a person with a disability and using them to boost yourself or boost society Mm. you should you know like you'll you'll see a lot of inspirational quote you know a caption of an inspirational quote underneath a person with a wheelchair and being like you know the only disability in life is a bad attitude (laughs) the only thing holding you back is you or stuff like that right and think about how that person now has to go out into the world and live their life as a person with a wide range of emotions and if they express any of those emotions that are contrary to being inspirational or positive all the time, they're doing disability wrong, mm. you know, because they're they're not inspiring you and they're not being positive. They're not looking on the sunny side of life. Therefore, they're doing disability wrong because you saw mm. that poster. <laughs> and that's how you think of them now as someone who represents that mentality. Mm-hmm. And it's... That's another aspect of it, too, is it makes it seem like people with disabilities have to just look at life uh, glass half full all the time and not be angry about it and not be angry about a system that oppresses them.
4: You've said it so well. You've said it so well. Hmm. Because most people who are putting out these motivational things think that they are being altruistic mm-hmm. when it's yeah. pretty much the opposite.
7: Yeah. I mean, I remember I was in a subway station a few years ago and a guy, I think I, I sort of lightly referenced this earlier in the conversation, but a guy did come up to me and tell me that God is going to give me hands someday. And uh, that was the wrong day to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, you know what? I don't appreciate that you said that to me. I find that very insulting. And he got really angry at me. Um, he was very, very livid. It was like he was shocked that I could respond in such a way that is so opposite to how he thinks I present myself. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, those moments tell me, you know, they illustrate for me how damaging those inspirational narratives are because Mm -hmm. I'm the one who has to face them every day with strangers, you know, out and about in the world. Mm
6: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
5: So do you think what happened to you, specifically asking this to an amputee, Is that an inappropriate question? Yes.
7: Yes, it is. (laughs) Boom, we
5: got it.
4: (laughs) (laughs) But then what would be appropriate? Okay, I will say that people should keep their mouth shut, and that's what I have learned. (laughs) If they are very inquisitive, they can Google Everything
7: you can Google, and I would, I would ask yourself. Just know, first of all, I get it. I understand that impulse, mm. but ask yourself why you are asking me that, and what it is that you feel you need from me to justify why I am the way I am. Mm. Because mm. It, ultimately, it doesn't matter what happened to me and, and and are you prepared for me to tell you something very traumatic because you might be emotionally triggering me if something traumatic happened to me um, a very yeah. horrific accident do you want to A. trigger me uh, and make me feel like now I have to tell you that and do you have the time to sit down and listen to it you know like ask yourself these questions mm. what do you think about disability and why is it so different to you and so mm. that my difference warrants question like Mm -hmm. what happened to you Mm.
4: regardless of what the answer is how is it going to benefit you
7: Exactly. Exactly.
4: How's it going to change your life?
7: Exactly. And it's not, um, you're not just by default entitled to someone's story, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And I guess, like you said
5: earlier, it might not even be, they might not even get the story that they're looking for. Exactly.
7: Because your truth might be something completely different. Yeah. And then how weird do I feel now that I didn't give you enough trauma? Like, that's so <laughs> weird. <laughs> Like, this is what true crime documentaries are for, you know, like just (laughs) not me.
4: Courtney, people who know you, who are your friends, if they want to know a little bit more about you, what would be an appropriate question to know you better?
7: Any question that puts the emphasis on, is there anything that I can do to enhance your experience as a person with a disability in this world? Mm. Because then that opens up the conversation For me to be as detailed or or not detailed as I want. Mm. But if you ask, what can I do as an able-bodied ally to make this world um, a more accessible place for you? Mm -hmm. That's a perfect question. That really opens up the discourse for us to actually have an engaging conversation that doesn't make me feel exploited. Or even pity. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's
5: kind of about them helping you more than them taking information from you.
7: Yes, and and how to be an ally, not just to me, but to people like me. Mm. So it's not just about me, you know, there are things that you can do. And if you take interest in that, I think that's a really positive step forward.
5: So far, our guests have been amputees since birth and have lived with these experiences their whole lives. Some amputees have their amputations later in life for different reasons, which can make answering this question, what happened to you, a
3: bit more complicated. My name is Carrie Banjo. I live in Regina, Saskatchewan. I am a First Nations woman and I am a recent amputee. She even has a cool name for her prosthetic leg. <laughs> I named him after Tom Hardy because, you know, because it's Tom Hardy. <laughs> I figured that my prosthetic is going to be my life partner. And I was like, well, if I'm going to have a life partner, it's, you know, it's just like a fantasy thing. And it really helped me accept my leg and not see it as something ugly. So I attach something I find attractive and beautiful to it. So it's hardy. And he's gold. <laughs> Carrie spoke to me
5: about how she uses this question to open up important conversations. Just as a heads up, Carrie talks about her experience with domestic violence in this next part. So in only as much as you want to share, um, can you tell us about your amputation and your story with it? It's kind of lengthy,
3: <laughs> <laughs> but it was the result of domestic violence. Mm-hmm it was with my former partner. We had an argument. I was walking away. He took a running shove and he shoved me from behind. And I, I don't know how far I flew, but I remember watching the countertop fly past me. So I was airborne automatically human instinct. You try to break your fall and I didn't have shoes on and I tried to stop myself Mm. and I landed my full weight on my left foot, and I could hear a... You know when you snap your finger in an empty apartment? Yeah. Like when you're moving and it's like echoey? Yeah. It sounded like that. It just like... I heard this really loud sound. He knew he heard me right away because he jumped down on the floor and he was holding Mm me. And I was still determined to leave. So I got up and I was wondering why my... I couldn't stand up. I thought it was my knee. Mm. And when I looked down, my foot was facing up. Ooh. And I did see a doctor and he said it was broken. And they put me in a walking t- cast and all that stuff. But it didn't heal properly. Mm. And so it was broken for like three years. It was essentially a dead foot. And it was slowly sucking the life out of me, like the pain. Ah. For four years, like there wasn't a night that I I slept a solid eight hours. It hurt. Like it was yeah. painful walking. It was painful doing every, anything. Mm. I was just so worn down that my body just couldn't take it anymore. Mm. And finally in twenty eighteen, I went in the hospital on October thirtieth and they all came back with the same prognosis. They could save maybe part of it. And then they said I would still be living with pain. I would have continuous surgeries. And I asked them, like, what about the pain? I was like, is there any way to get rid of the pain? The only option was amputation. Amputation would be my best bet to get my life back to normal. Mm. And so I laid in my hospital bed. I cried. Mm. I did cry. For me, I, I love my legs. It was like my... Mm. Like my favorite part of myself, like I remember when the plastic surgeon was talking to me and telling me how far the amputation would be. And and I find this funny now, but the first thing that popped into my head was can I still wear boots? And he was like, yes, you can still wear boots. And he was rubbing my back and I was like, okay, okay.
5: Life will be good. If I can still (laughs) wear boots, we got
3: this. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Nice. I was like, okay, well, that's a glimmer of my normal life. And I made the decision by myself because I realized that the journey I'd have to take would be, be mine. I didn't want anybody there Mm. trying to convince me to keep my foot because I wanted to just think it through logically.
5: Mm.
3: And every scenario, amputation seemed like the only answer. Right. And so I did. I went through the surgery and I woke up and I wasn't in pain. And I kept waiting for that pain to come back. And it never did. I think I slept a solid two days, they just wake me up to check my vitals and feed me. And that was such bliss, you know, Mm. to just sleep. Having that rest, I knew I I made the right decision. And Mm. I decided that I wasn't going to let anything, no matter how difficult, ever make me look back at my decision as a wrong decision. Because for me, it was was right for me. Mm. And so I have no regrets about that. I'm so glad the pain
5: stopped. That must have been, yeah, definitely a difficult decision, but I'm so glad it was the right one. Yeah. I read uh, your piece that you wrote about your story in Eagle Feather News in Saskatchewan, and the line, I think it's the last line that stood out to me, um, was that you say that you wear domestic violence where the world can see it. What is it like to have you know, that part of your experience, you know, not everyone you know who sees you knows what you just told me, but what is it like to have that be a visible part of yourself?
3: I use it as an opportunity to start the conversation about domestic violence because I think mm. for a lot of people, including myself, it, it's a topic that I ignored. I didn't huh. want to hear about it. I I didn't want to talk about it. And I just being silent didn't help. Hmm. So it's not that I want to shock people, <laughs> but I want people to know the the extent of what domestic violence can do to a person.
6: Hmm.
3: Like so many people where there are victims and they can go out and no one sees their scars, whether they're hmm. emotional or mental. They could be physical, but they're hidden. So they no one sees them.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I can't do that. It's there. Mm-hmm. And so rather than, you know, making up a cute little story about what the reality is, I decided to just be honest. Mm -hmm. And from there, like, how do they react? Some people are a little taken aback by that. Right. And some people, um, it really does open up that conversation. Um, You'd be surprised that some of the people that share their own stories, you like, my mom was a victim. I lost my sister. It gives them an opportunity to recognize it in their lives and to also speak about it because I think there is a our rates in Saskatchewan are so we have the highest rate of domestic violence in Canada and Ugh. part of it is because we stay silent you know we keep it to ourselves and so I use my story and my image I guess
0: mm-hmm.
3: I use it to just start that conversation even if um, people don't Uh, aren't ready to talk about it. Mm -hmm. At least they know they can see the damage that it can have on, on a person. Mm.
5: Going back to the question, it sounds like sometimes you, you actually really value this question overall. uh, Is this an inappropriate thing to ask?
3: I think what's inappropriate is to just stare. Hmm. I've, got, I've had to deal with a lot of people that just stared, mm. and I'd rather have them converse with me than to stare at me like I'm some kind of um, creature, you know? Like, mm. like if you're curious, ask. For me, it's, it's a conversation starter. Maybe it comes with my background of being a reporter that I don't mind answering questions <laughs> as long as they're not um, Disrespectful. Like in terms of the place they're coming from? Yeah, like I respect those that are curious and will say, I hope you don't mind me asking. Mm. Like, and that's like the best way to say it. I hope you don't mind me asking, but what happened to your leg? That's probably the best way to ask that difficult question if you're curious. Mm-hmm. If the person is not comfortable, they can just tell you like, I don't feel comfortable. Mm. And that's the end of it. It makes me feel Very awkward to just know that people are talking and looking at me. They have questions about why I have a prosthetic. I choose not to cover it up. I'm very um, open with it. There was the option to get a foam covering to make it look like a leg. Right. But I chose not to do that. It's not for the attention, but rather it's more about accepting myself for what I look like now. Right. Covering it up with a foam, piece of foam. It's not me. Like mm. my my leg is me now. I'm really happy that um, my prosthesis here in Regina was able to let me choose the covering for my for my leg, and I I chose the the most gold like material that I could find, and <laughs> I'm really happy with it. Um, my oldest daughter, she was like, "Yeah, of course you'd do that. You're you're always so extra." <laughs> <laughs>
4: I thought that amputations always happen after a specific accident or injury. But now I'm learning that's not always the case.
5: Jamie Gain is an adaptive athlete from England, and people make this assumption about him a lot.
6: I'm a professional athlete in judo and obstacle racing with a single below knee amputation and a spinal cord injury. I went through a time where I maybe had five or six people on an average day asking me what happened to my leg because mm-hmm. i lived right in the town center knew people all the time and it always happens when you're in the middle of something else you know you are going to the bank and the bank closes at 4 and it's 355 you got 5 minutes to get there mm-hmm. and someone like stops you puts their hands up oh what happened to you what happened to you were you in the army and there's always that mm-hmm. like were you in the army you know they think i'm oh, a young athletic chap oh you must have been in the army i'm mm-hmm. um, I'm on my way to the bank. I'm doing something. Can you go look at my blog or go look at my website? You know, can you just look at that? Because I'm, I'm bored of telling people, you know, if five or six people are asking you a day, that's an awful lot of times explaining the same thing over and over again.
5: What do you tell them? Is it like a one-liner? Like, I had it amputated? Like, what do you usually, how do you usually respond?
6: If that happens in that situation, most of the time i just say, oh, I had, a, I had a chronic pain condition. My leg didn't work. I got a new one. Just
4: kind of keep it short and simple. Mm. Is that the same case when kids ask? Because they can be very blunt and curious. Um, well, I mean, obviously, an adult, I
6: can kind of keep it very brief and use my tone and my gestures to kind of signify that I don't want to talk about it or this is the most I'm going to talk about it. With kids, it's, it's obviously a lot different. You know, they're really inquisitive. And I understand that, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I kind of applaud them for... For asking questions mm-hmm. and you know as a as a school teacher myself I want to encourage students to ask questions so when they do ask I always welcome them with not open arms but the questions with open arms and um and I de- I tend to keep it very you know I had a leg that didn't work very well and I'm getting a new leg so that well, I have a new leg and this one works really well and I'm able to walk on it and I'm able to run on it and they kind of go oh okay and then that's it. They're quite happy. They're satisfied. They have their answer, and they normally go back to their parents and say, mommy, look at that man's leg. He's really cool, you know," <laughs> which, is, which is quite cute.
5: Do people accept your answer? You know, if they're expecting you to be like, "I was in this horrific accident" or "in the army," and you tell them, "I had a chronic pain condition," uh, how do they usually react to that? Are they like, "Oh, okay," or are they are they mind blown?
6: Well, I think I think if I go into it fully, you know, and I say, oh, I was in a wheelchair for 14 years I'm not able to walk and now I can walk and now I can run. Mm -hmm. Now I'm a professional athlete who runs marathons and, you know, who's ranked second in the world. Nice. Then they kind of go, oh, okay, right.
5: (laughs) So in the interest of of that understanding, and sorry if we're the seventh and eighth people to ask this, (laughs) but do you mind telling us a little bit more about that? Like, what's the, the fuller story?
6: Yeah, sure. So um I, I had a, a chronic pain condition called complex regional pain syndrome. And it's effectively a problem between the pathway between your brain and a limb or a part of your body. And um my foot was completely purple, I couldn't wear shoes or socks, I couldn't do anything at all, you know, I couldn't have the duvet on me at night. It was so, so painful. Mm. And um when I was about sixteen I went to the doctors and said, you know, it's not, it's not working. All of the, all the things you've tried. I'd, I'd had 25 surgeries by that point. Wow. wow. Yeah, it's a lot for a 16-year-old, (laughs) you know. And, um, and they said, okay, well, we're going to do this other surgery and this other surgery, and if that doesn't work, then amputation is on the cards. And I hadn't really thought about amputation before; hadn't come across it. So I thought, oh wow, okay, amputation. Yeah, let's get rid of the thing. You know, it doesn't work. Let's just get a new one. Whatever. And um, and they said to me, you know, you're only 16. You don't know what you're talking about. You know, you're only young, etc., etc. Cetera, et cetera. So I then just fought. I just kept going and going and going until I found a surgeon that was willing to amputate. But even saying that, I went for my first amputation in July. Mm. And ten minutes before the procedure, I was gowned up. I was marked ready for surgery. Ten minutes before the procedure, the anesthetist said nope. I'm not doing it.
5: Whoa!
6: Yeah, well, the whole thing was cancelled, mm. and then I had to go back to uh, back to a therapist, back to see a different specialist, and then ten weeks later, it was it was actually done.
5: Whoa! So it was a long
6: old Whoa. journey. Yeah.
5: That sounds exhausting.
6: It was pretty exhausting. You know, my my amputation was my thirty sixth surgery.
5: Whoa!
4: Wow. So I kind of had enough by that point. Oh my God, Jimmy! I can see how it could be annoying to constantly have to explain yourself. Yeah.
5: Do people tend to view you differently as an athlete, you know, given that you use these adaptations? Do you ever get someone going, "Wow, you're you're so inspirational?"
6: I think to a certain extent it is quite nice to for some people to say, "Oh, right. you know, what you've done is really inspirational." And I think mm. I think that's, that works really well if you have genuinely done something that inspires other people. Hmm. So, for example, you know, I ran around 50 miles in a weekend a couple of years ago or a year ago. And, you know, for people to say, oh, wow, okay, that's a really inspirational feat. Mm-hmm. Well, it it is for anybody, you know, yeah. whether you've got one leg or two legs. And I kind of think, okay, I can understand how people find that. Whereas when I'm walking down the street... And I'm just I'm just walking. They don't know who I am, and they just go because you're an amputee. You're inspirational. Mm-hmm. Just existing is not an excuse to be inspirational. Yeah.
4: But but Jamie, could it be uh, because people say that you crossed a hurdle, even though you had you had the disability, you are doing better than most people who do not have that disability. So from that point of view, uh, b- would you not say it's a wow moment?
6: yeah it's, yeah I think it's interesting because you like for example I, I sometimes come into situations and I don't always appear like an amputee you know I don't have an obvious mm. obvious limp and if I wear trousers i I wear a a cover for my prosthetic so that it kind of fills out my leg so to most people you can't really tell that i'm an amputee Mm -hmm. and you know i'll go to a gathering and be surrounded by people and they'll say like oh you know what what do you do what what are you doing tomorrow i'll say oh i'm just i'm I'm doing a long run tomorrow you know just just going out for like an hour and a half just going for a nice run and um they say oh wow okay cool that sounds good and that's their reaction Mm -hmm. and then later on You know, like I might sit down on the sofa, I might just take my leg off because why not? And then people say, wow, I didn't know you were an amputee. Mm. And then all of a sudden that goes from, oh, wow, okay, cool. You're going for an hour and a half to, whoa, my mind is blown. Wow. And it feels so exaggerated and it feels so insincere to a certain extent that actually you kind of get seen as two different people Mm. in those kind of situations. And actually you should be impressed or inspired or whatever by anybody doing anything as well, you know, not just because I'm an amputee.
5: We're back with my friend Juliana, who you heard at the beginning of the show.
4: So Juliana, the next time someone sees someone on the street who might be an amputee, what should they do? Should they just stare and say nothing or should they approach and talk?
2: yeah people will stare i i respect people that will like stare and then be like okay i got my eyeful, and then i'll move on i'm like you know mm. fair i also do that sometimes <laughs> in my life like I, <laughs> I guess the same kind of rule applies to like if you look at somebody's cleavage <laughs> it's, it's like get an understanding move an on understanding. like it's okay it's a natural <sighs> phenomenon but like don't try to linger too long um yeah. but <laughs>
4: your choice of words is amazing
2: thank you <laughs> <laughs> but um <sighs> I, th- I think the only rule is don't make it your first question. Right. That's the, that's mm-hmm. the only thing I'm kind of asking. <laughs> right. If we've had a five-minute conversation and you say, can I can I just ask you blah, 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 like I'll probably be fine about it. Mm-hmm. I think this is another inappropriate question, by the way. The classic <laughs> question is, if you mm-hmm. woke up tomorrow and you had 10 fingers, what's the first thing you'd do? Mm-hmm. Like, everyone expects me to say i jump for joy and, like, I'd won the lottery. But really, I'd just be like, (laughs) why? I don't really need this. There's literally nothing that I can't do in my everyday life that bothers me at all. Mm -hmm. Like, to me, it does not satisfy anything. Mm -hmm. Because I I can do everything that I want. And the things that I've learned from being, quote, unquote, different have been huge and valuable. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's given me more empathy for... Any kind of person that feels different in this world for any reason. And yeah, I would never undo any of it.
4: I'm Harvinder Vadva.
5: And I'm Elena Hudgens Lyle.
4: Thanks for getting inappropriate with us.
5: A huge thanks to our guests, Juliana Romantic, Courtney Gilmore, Carrie Benjo, and Jamie Gain. And by the way, all the music in this episode was written and performed by Juliana. You can search Romantic. R-O-M-A-N-Y-K, wherever you stream music to hear more.
4: Also, make sure you visit cbc.ca forward slash IQ podcast for full transcript of this episode.
5: The groovy group behind this podcast are Sabrina Birch, Cindy Long, and myself. The show is mixed by Andrew Norton. Our Chase producer is Sarah Melton, and our digital producer is Judy Zee our senior producer is Jeff Turner, and our executive producer is R.F. Narani.
4: An inappropriate question is like getting a paper cut, but your family
1: won't bring you breakfast in bed. Well, there you go, folks. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, this has been the very first episode of season three of Inappropriate
0: Questions. You can listen to more episodes on the CBC Listen app and everywhere you
1: get your podcasts. Have a lovely day. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.